Amen. Let's pray one more time together. Ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word together. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this day. Lord, for many of us, it's a challenge just to make it to church. I know it is for me. Uh, Sometimes uh, we can easily be discouraged. We can easily be distracted. And so, Father, we pray that You would use Your Word, Lord, today as that powerful means of grace that glorious means of grace, Lord, to realign our focus and to set our vision upon You, that we would behold You in Your Word. And in beholding You, that we would be transformed in the process of that. That our lives would be changed, would be altered, would be brought into a greater conformity into the image of Your Son, Jesus Lord, we understand that sanctification is a lifelong endeavor, a lifelong process, and that that process, if we are truly engaged in the sanctification process, that process can at times be agonizing, and it can seem like blood, sweat, and tears on the altar of holiness. And yet, Lord, such is Your will. Such is Your will for Your people. And so we pray that You would use this Word today, Lord, to encourage us. Lift up our heads, strengthen our heart, and cause us to be more in tune with Your Word and help us, Lord, to be more uh, like Christ, Lord, in all of our affections and in all of our good works, Lord, that we would be more like Him in His heart as a servant, and in His heart as a... Uh, a disciple of your word, Lord, a, a teacher of your word. And so, Father, we pray that we would reflect his glory, Lord, in our lives. Would you come, Lord, would you come and change us so that we can be more like him in everyday life, down to the most practical things and up to the highest things in our thoughts and in our minds and Lord we pray that all these things would be sanctified by your spirit and so Father we ask Lord give us your spirit today in great measure help us Lord assist us as we preach and as we listen and as we apply Lord may it be something that you can uh, take pleasure in may it be a soothing and pleasing aroma in your sight our lives and our worship the sacrifice of praise on our lips. Lord, we thank you now. Father, help us, Lord, as we consider what it means for us to gain the glory as the Apostle Paul talks about here. Help us not to lose sight of that. Help us not to lose our focus on that. That that is our destiny. Our destiny is not just to get old and to get weary Our destiny is for us to gain the glory. And so in understanding that, Lord, help us to understand that our lives are on a mission towards that. That we have a a future hope, a future and heavenly trajectory that our lives are on. And help us not to lose sight of that, Lord. We're so easily distracted. So easily is this heavenly vision and this heavenly hope drowned out by the noise and the clutter of the world. So help us, O God, set our sight on this glory again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is uh, 
quite a passage of Scripture. I was actually very tempted to do one sermon out of verse 13, and uh, I, I thought, you know what, we've been going at a snail's pace through eschatology and the context that we've been looking at, so today uh, I'm going to tackle these three verses, and they are so glorious. Uh, but this message is entitled, Gaining the Glory, and I take that directly from uh, verse 14, where it says that reason that you and I have been saved, it's a purpose clause, that you may gain the glory. See that? That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking very simple questions out of this text. The question is, what does it look like when you gain the glory What are the characteristics of a person who will gain the glory? How do we know that we are going to gain the glory? Because the glory is what it's all about. God created the universe so that you would gain the glory. God made you so that you would gain the glory. God saved you. God sent His Son. He died on the cross. He rose again so that you would gain the glory. Don't you see? Everything is right here. This is our all. Captured in this one phrase. Gain the glory. Now what does that mean? Well, not so fast. i got to go through point one. (laughs) But this question is massive, isn't it? The question before us is, what are the essential characteristics? What are the essential marks of a Christian? Or what are the essential characteristics of a person who will gain this glory? Because number one, we better know what that is. Number two, we want that. We want that. We want to know. I want to know. So number one, the person who will gain the glory is someone who has been chosen by God. It doesn't begin with us. (laughs) You see that? It doesn't begin on the human level. It doesn't begin on the human will or with the human will or in human volition or it doesn't begin in a man-centered way. It begins in a God-centered way. Uh, What's the characteristic of a person that will gain the glory? He or she will be chosen by God. And so, look at the text. Verse 13 but we should always give thanks for you, to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Now, we have to kind of pause just for a second. We just got out of a context where he delved deeply into Antichrist is coming. Man of sin, be revealed. Apostasy will take place. Signs and wonders, powers, a deception is coming. People are going to perish. A deluding influence is going to be sent for all those that took pleasure in wickedness. But, so that is a, that, in verse three, that, that is a strong adversative. 
In other words, that is when the author of Scripture just slams on the brakes, getting ready to transition to something else. And so no more is the focus on the Antichrist. No more is the focus on those who will perish. Now the focus is on the commendation of the church, the edification of the church, the hope of the church. And so he says, we always ought to give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren. We thank God for you because he chose you. Because he chose you. Go back to the first letter. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Because this is a parallel to what he said there. Another very close passage because he's thanking God right here in chapter 1 too. So he's saying, verse 2, we give thanks to God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Always uh, making mention of you, uh, we thanks, well, excuse me, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you all in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, almost the exact same formula that he uses there in our text, because of his choice of you. Because of his choice. And here, the Greek word there for choice is eklekte, election. It really should be because of his election of you. Now, that's not the same word that he uses in the, in, in the second letter, but it is the same concept. It is conceptually identical. Uh, maybe, if anything, his choice in here in verse 13 is uh, uh, speaking specifically of God's act of preferring, His act of uh, discriminating. I choose you, but I don't choose others. That's how election works. Now, we'll get into that. But here's a very encouraging thing, brothers and sisters, because election is something that, you know, it lives in the realm of the abstract in our mind. (laughs) Okay? It's a philosophical concept, beautiful concept, but it's a philosophical concept, as challenging as it is. But here's the practical, pastoral, devotional part of it. We can give thanks for it. In other words, there seems to be a cause for Paul to give thanks about specific people, specific believers. He sees evidence in them, just like it is in the first letter we saw, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. So there is tangible, practical evidence of our election. That is good news. Because our election is not a, it's not a hope in the dark. It's not just a wishful thinking type of thing. It's not a probability factor. It's not, you know, it's not a chance type thing. We are not occupying blind faith. This is not sort of a leap in the dark. I hope I'm chosen. No, 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 but the the comforting thing, the reassuring thing, is that there are actual, visible, tangible signs, manifestations of election in our life. Now, do I know that you're chosen? Let's just go one by one. You chosen, yes or no? Well, okay. To an infinite level, I don't know. I don't see your heart. You don't see my heart. And so, to an, at an ultimate degree, at a, at a, at an, infallible degree i don't know 
but I have a general, a practical confidence in your election as much as a human can have. And hopefully that confidence can be bolstered by fruit in your life, by evidence in my life that we are elect, that we are chosen, so that we can say with Paul about one another, I thank God for you, beloved brethren, because God has chosen you. That's great. That's the way it should work. And that's the way it does work. Now notice here, this election, really controversial text, I didn't know until I got into this. There are a couple of textual issues going on in verse 13 that we either skip over them, I just won't even tell you what's going on. I just let you just kind of live in your translations and, you know, uh, or we get into it a little bit. And so knowing my nature, we're going to get into it a little bit. And here's what it is. A lot of commentators just skipped it. They just skipped it. They didn't tell you about it. It just kind of went on. I went to MacArthur. Help me, MacArthur. Nothing. Silent. You know, I went to certain pastoral commentaries. They don't deal with it. I had to go to the technical guys. They get into the text uh, because it's a textual variant that we're looking at here. And this is what it is. Ready? You may have it in your footnote. You, how many, raise your hand if you have an ESV. Raise your hand if you have an NASB. Okay, we are divided here. <laughs> all you, all, all, if, you are, if you are ESV positive, <laughs> get up and go to this side of the building, right? So there is a division among us. But it's just a textual variant division. If you have an ESV, ESV, your Bible says that they have been chosen as first fruits. You see that? If you have an NASB, a Calvinist translation, I'm just <laughs> Here's why I say that. Because the NASB says, you have been chosen from the beginning. Uh, from the beginning, first fruits totally different this is not this is not even close to being the same meaning so we are up against a serious textual variant either the apostle paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit wrote down the words ap arche from beginning or he wrote down aparkane first fruits what's the difference well one is separate there's almost like same letters just depends you're going to separate the first two letters, A and P, op. See? In the textual manuscripts, you have manuscripts that say aparkane, from beginning. And you have some manuscripts that say aparkane, first fruits. What gives? To make it even more difficult, you have uh, textual critics totally divided on this, all the way down the line. You have some of the best voices in textual criticism. Bruce Metzger to Philip Comfort to everybody else. Gordon Fee, everybody else talking about this. And they're totally divided on this issue. Uh, Bruce Metzger, I think, gives it a C grade. Uh, he, he opts for the translation of the ESV, First Fruits. He gives it a C and he expresses no confidence in his choice. <laughs> so it's just like, I could be totally wrong. It's like, but you're the guy. <laughs> we can't go to you. We got nobody, right? Well... I understand all of that, and I understand how this can cause you uh, to panic or to be confused. And so what's my position? Uh, Tentatively, at least, my position is that NASB is right, uh, that it should be a prepositional phrase from 
the beginning instead of the ESV reading first fruits. Now, let me, let me, let me try to, let me try to explain it this way. Both fit the context. Both have theological support. Both have contextual uh, logic to them. In other words, if the Apostle Paul meant to say, you are the first fruits, this is what he's saying. It's kind of like what he says in, uh, I think it's in Corinthians, where he talks about the first fruits of Achaia. So he's saying the church, the converts and Thessalonians, they are the first fruits of a region of people that got saved. Okay, the problem with that is, cause th- is that they're not. <laughs> So in the churches of Macedonia, the Thessalonians were not the first converts. And so that is challenging, okay? And so you know, uh, so commentators uh, like the ones I've been reading would say, well, it's just a general statement. He's not trying to be exactly chronologically. More importantly, he's just almost saying like, you are part of the collective Gentile first fruits of conversion to the gospel. You're the original churches that have been converted to the gospel. And that's certainly uh, amazing. And when you think of first fruits, what do you think about? Well, you think about agriculture, right? First fruit language in the Bible is connected to the concept of a harvest. That's what it's all about. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection, right? And as the first fruit of the resurrection, what it's saying is that he is the first of the harvest that is coming at the great resurrection. That's what the, that's what the first fruit language is all about. And does that fit the context? In a sense, it does. Because what he's saying is that in contrast with the wicked, you, the believers, so the righteous and the wicked, the believers, the non-believers, the elect, the non-elect, those who love the truth, those who reject the truth, those who will know the truth, and those who will be deceived, those who will have discernment on the last day, in the last days, you know, with Antichrist and everything that we've been talking, and those who will be deluded. And you are the first fruits, and so you belong to that eschatological people who will experience the resurrection. That's possible. But he may also be saying what the NASB is saying, that God's choice here is modified in terms of a temporal modification, meaning to stress when this choice took place. It took place from the beginning. Now, I went through all the first fruit passages in the Bible, all of them, the first, uh, New Testament, every single one, bam, 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 every single one. And almost every single first fruit passage has a modifier that, comp- that, that is a, a, a sort of a, a comparative modifier to the word first fruits. In other words, it's like first fruits of a chaos, first fruits of, uh, of the resurrection, first fruits from the dead, something like that. There's nothing like that here. So he leaves it with no modifier. First fruits of what? Okay, so that's not characteristic of Paul with the use of first fruits. The only other use of first fruits is talking about Christ, that he is the first fruit, right? And so even then, he is the first fruit, and oftentimes even that is modified. He is the first fruit of, you know, those who will be saved or of from the dead or something like that. And so there's no modifier here. It just leaves it just like that. So that's my choice, and I think uh, when you think about the broader context of First, Second Thessalonians, I already showed you chapter one, where he talks about something that's very similar in terms of God's election taking place, uh, and 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 it happens through the gospel. And so I think here we would be okay if we stuck with the NAS read, reading that being chosen by God happened from the beginning, and then. We go from a temporal sort of uh, 
you know, we go, we go, we go from a, a, a talking about the, the, the how this happened to the, or the when this happened, uh, for the purpose of what it happened. So when did it happen? It happened in the beginning. And so that would be sort of a reference to eternity, you see? Something like that. Um, let's see here. It's a danger preaching on your laptop or your uh, iPad here because if it does something that's too, uh, too technical, uh, I'll be like calling Chris Bessop here or something. So, um, that's the point. The point is that they have been chosen from the beginning, and then they are chosen, and it uses this sort of qualification, through two things. So there's two instrumental ideas. Number one, through sanctification by the Spirit. Number two, faith in the truth. So what does this tell us? Not only is election something that God does, not only is election something that God does in eternity past from the beginning, in that sense, but God elects through a means. In other words, this is, this is how God brings his election to pass. Number one, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and number two, through faith in the truth. What is this sanctification of the Spirit? Well, this is what theologians refer to here as definitive sanctification. It is not to be, dis- it is not to be confused. Listen carefully. It is not to be confused with progressive sanctification. In other words, he's not saying the more and more and more and more you sanctify yourself, that is the way that God is going to choose you. No. No, no, no. The way that your election is brought to pass brought to realization, in other words, is through a definitive act of the Spirit of God sanctifying you. In other words, it's the, it's the moment of conversion. At the moment of conversion, your election is realized. Uh, prior to that, your election is decreed. Your election is conceptually in the mind of God, but it has not been realized in time and space until you believe. And that's what sanctification through the Spirit is all about. The Spirit sanctifies us. Remember I told you there are two things here? Two hard textual things. Number one, is it from the beginning or is it first fruits? That's one. Number two, and here's the pastor who's not hiding anything from you, <laughs> is the, the, the difficult question of the word Spirit here. See your text? It does not say Holy Spirit, but many of your texts will have a capital S. Right? And in the text, it literally is in the holiness of of spirit. So it could either refer to human spirit as in your soul. And if that's the case, then the sanctification is something that you receive, right? It's received by our human spirit or experienced by the human spirit, or it is the sanctification of the spirit, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. And therefore that sanctification is that which comes from the spirit of God. Two different options there. I take the divine spirit as the choice. Uh, I think uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who will sanctify the human spirit. And there's so many different reasons uh, for that. But again, I give you the parallel in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 as evidence of that because it's the same context. He chooses you, and then, verse 5, first, this is First Thessalonians 1, 5, and then he has the same instrumental construction, only this time he uses the Holy Spirit explicitly. So he says, he has chosen you, and then it says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And so I think he means to say the same thing here in essence. 
As the, as the Spirit of God regenerates us, He cleanses us, He washes us, He transforms us. But He also does that through the means of faith. And so our election is worked out through conversion. And that conversion takes place as the Spirit of God sanctifies us, pulls us out of the world, takes us out of darkness, out of death, puts us in the light, into life. And that is also done in conjunction with His powerful, effectual call, which results in faith in the truth. That's what He says. Faith in the truth. That's the requisite, in other words. Faith in the truth. Now, I don't want to focus too much on that, faith in the truth, because in verse four, uh, 14, He sort of reiterates that here. Look at what it says. Because verse 14 is kind of giving us the second major characteristic of someone that gains the glory. Someone that gains the glory, number one, is chosen by God. Number two, someone who gains the glory is somebody who is called by the gospel. By the gospel. Why do I say that? Look at verse 14. It was for this that he called you through our gospel. So there's no way around it. Election has a means, and the gospel call is that means that he uses to effectually draw people unto salvation. What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, if the gospel, there is no unto salvation if there is no gospel. People do not get saved. They do not inherit salvation. They do not inherit eternal life without the gospel. The gospel is indispensable for salvation. That is how, I mean, how else are they going to believe, Paul says in Romans 10, unless they hear. They, how are they going to hear unless they preach? Are they going to preach unless, they, unless you are sent? So that is why the missionary work of the church is absolutely indispensable. It is not optional. It's not optional. We have to send people to go die. We have to have martyrs in the church. We have to have missionaries. We must send people to communicate the gospel. Creation is not enough. Conscience is not enough. We have to present to them the, 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 the essential components of the gospel message that Jesus, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that you are dead in your sin, that your sin will send you to hell, and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross. He rose again. If you trust in Him, you will be born again and you will have eternal life. you got to get that in there. You don't get that in there, you don't go to heaven. It's that simple. I was appalled some years back reading an article where on the Gospel Coalition, surprise, surprise, some people, that in this article, this uh, brother was arguing for uh, kind of more of a relational evangelism style. Okay, I, I have no problem with that. Uh, relational evangelism, absolutely. We should do that every, you know, as often as we can with our coworkers, our, our family members, our, 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 our neighbors. No problem. Relate to them, then give them the gospel. <laughs> Have a relationship with them, you know? <laughs> and then, give, then share the gospel with them. But what he was saying in that article that disturbed me so bad is he's saying that we have to be careful that we don't turn people into like a gospel project 
And so, because then they just become sort of like our mission, our objective. Like, well, that's kind of what people are, aren't they? But anyway, but then he said, he even went so far as to say, well, you don't want to, you know, make it seem as if the more of the gospel, you know, essential gospel components you, you communicate, you know, like you've, you've earned points or something. I go, first of all, that is a terrible way to construct the situation. We're, we're not in this to gain points. You understand? We're not trying to gain anybody's points or anybody's merit. Well, listen, he went so far as to say, like, you know, it's as if Christians think, he says, that if we mention the resurrection, we get real extra points for that. I'm thinking, like, what are you talking about? So you're, like, discouraging believers from mentioning the resurrection? Like, no, you know, we the, the article should have been, you know, uh, it should have been deleted and rewritten to say, you know, Christians today don't even know what the essential components of the gospel are. How do we start there? How about we start telling people what needs to be communicated when we communicate the gospel? Like, what what are the essential components of a true gospel call? I had Phil Johnson here a few years ago to preach on that. He decided not to preach on it. He just, he just went AWOL on me. And he preached something else. He preached it great. I mean, he preached great. I mean, what he preached was great. But I wanted to hear, I'm talking like, I wanted to hear very elementary, like, like very just simple, like, like point number one, you have to mention sin, you have to mention death and hell, you have to mention the cross, you know, you have to mention the resurrection, you know, you have to mention repentance, okay? And then this is how you present the gospel. You know, many Christians are forgetting how to do it, especially in our postmodern world. It's almost like, well, whatever you say is good, man. As long as you say, this is how, this is how much our evangelical culture has picked up, you know, the culture of the world. It almost is like, as much as, as, as long as you love the person, you know, what matters more is some emotional state of mind in your heart and your mind than getting to the actual facts of the gospel. That is not, that is not at all what you see in Scripture. In Scripture, they were very careful to point out, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again, then you will be saved, right? That's, that, that sounds like gospel, right? Well, yeah, that's Romans chapter 10. It's exactly how Paul talked. And so, somebody that is going to gain the glory is somebody that, who has been called by the gospel. Now, this is what's interesting. Notice what he says in verse 14. Notice how careful he is here to say that he called you, watch this now, through our gospel. Okay, this is, this is interesting because Paul often changes that. He goes from our gospel to something like God's gospel. You ever seen that in Paul? Romans chapter 1, verse 1, right? Our, uh, God's gospel, right? Uh, so what's, what's the deal here? I like this because when Paul says he called you through our gospel, I think what it ultimately means is this, is that he is referring to the actual evangelistic efforts of Paul and his companions when they preached the gospel to these pagans. Because that's where they were, guys. These, these were idolaters, right? Uh, first, the first letter makes it clear. Chapter 1, verse 9, they turned from idols to the living and true God, you see? And so how did they do that? Well, they did that through the proclamation of the gospel message through the Apostle Paul. So when the Apostle Paul says, our gospel, he does not mean the gospel originated with him. He does not mean that the gospel comes from him, that the gospel is a product of his mind or his thinking. Careful here, because Muslims love verses like this to show you that Paul invented the gospel. 
And that's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, just chase this down a little bit further. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just to get the better balance of what... See, the Apostle Paul understood that the gospel was his identity. He was united to the gospel. He was saved by the gospel. The gospel was his message to declare. He treasured it. He was willing to suffer all things for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel reminded him that the power was not from him, but the power was from God. Now, don't, now stay with me now. This is so critical, brothers and sisters, to why that article is dead wrong and why we have to share the gospel, why we got to get it out of our mouth. And it's not enough to just, uh, well, uh, just come to church with me. That's not the gospel. You know what I mean? It's not the gospel. Uh, it's not enough to say, God bless you. It's not enough to just, you know, hey, I'll pray for you, Right? Hopefully he'll think I'm a good person now and maybe that kind of opened the door. Okay, maybe, but you have not preached the gospel yet. This is going to remind us why it's so critical that we share the gospel. Look at what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's the gospel. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not from ourselves. It's kind of like, why did God use such foolish pathetic people like ourselves, right? This is somebody that really understands total depravity, you know, (laughs) knows like what you're really made out of, right? Left to yourself, man, like Job says, we're dust and ashes. I mean, we're nothing in God's eyes, right? Why would God use clay pots to put his his, his indispensable, infinitely valuable treasure, the most precious treasure? Why would he put it in such dirty vessels like ourselves? This is why he's telling you why. So that the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. I I keep reading for a reason. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of our body, in, in the body, the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What's he saying there? As a missionary, the reason I suffer... No, no, no. When you look at my life and you find an individual who is being stoned, beaten, locked up, thrown in prison, left for dead, okay? When you see this this guy named Paul from Tarsus, when you see this guy beat down, probably full of scars, marred, probably, you know, I mean, wouldn't be on the cover of GQ magazine, okay? He's not nothing to look at. What? When God does that, what he's saying is that the world is seeing a reflection of the dying of Jesus in me. That's what, that's what they're saying. It's like, you ever wonder why God ordained so many missionaries to suffer? Right? Because, man, people need to see the sacrifice in you. That's what he says in, first, uh, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, right? Verse 24, he talks about he fills up the measure of the sufferings of Christ in his body. That's remarkable. And, and, and I keep reading verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And here's the key. If you didn't hear anything, this is it. So death works in us, but life in you. So we may be dying, we may be handed over to the wolves, We may be like sheep to the slaughter. 
We may be dying, but life is springing up in you. It's like, man, Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the ground, it dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so our whole life, brothers and sisters, follows the pattern of the cross. Paul ultimately says the gospel is God's gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Excuse me, Romans chapter 15, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. 1 uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. And verses 8 and 9. Matter of fact, turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Because what this tells us is that when Paul says our gospel, what he means is the gospel of God that has been entrusted to him for the purpose of faithful proclamation. That is our gospel. That's what he means. Our gospel. That's what that means. And you see that, for example, right here. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. You ready? He uses the phrase twice, the gospel of God. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, there it is, but also our lives. You become very dear to us. This is what missions is all about. This is why people go. And consequently, speaking about missions, Joseph Urban will be here next week. We're going to be having a theological conversation from the stage here for Sunday School Hour. So jot that down. Just a slight announcement that we've missed today. Pastor Lynn didn't remember it, and I didn't remember it. I'm remembering it now. So that's what's going on. Uh, he doesn't know that yet, but that's what he's doing. <laughs> he's coming here. We're going to have a, a rich theological conversation that you guys will all be a part of. So, uh, but that's why Joseph went to Mexico. That's why a friend of mine goes all over the Muslim world. He goes all over the Muslim world. Why? Because having so fond an affection for the people that God is saving, he was, he's willing to give his life. And he says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden on on any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Whose gospel is it? Is it our gospel or is it God's gospel? Well, originating from God, yes, but it is your gospel. And so I put a little simple question here. Is it your gospel? Have you taken ownership of it yet? Do you own it like Paul owned it? It's my gospel. You see, it's our gospel. Sometimes he says, my gospel. He says, it's mine. It's my identity. It's my message. It's it's my task, my mission, my life, my soul. It's everything to me. Is the gospel everything to you. If it's not, you need to grow in that. You need to grow in that down to the very practical matters of life so that instead of responding with a sharp tone, you ask yourself, what would the gospel say to do here? Instead of getting mad on the way home from work, what does the gospel tell me to do? How does the gospel tell me to behave? How does the gospel tell me to prefer that person at work, prefer that person in the family? How does the gospel inform me to be merciful with my children when I was going to just do the discipline thing all over again. And see, the gospel kind of changes things, right? Like the gospel is like, well, we're not robotic in our Christianity because the gospel is a living principle in our life. 
And, um, and so somebody that is going to gain the glory is going to be called by God. Be called by the gospel, rather. That's the point. And then the second thing here under this is that we are called by the gospel and we are called for the glory. Settle in, take a deep breath, stand up and stretch if you need to because I'm not nearly done today uh, because there's too much here and this, so this is going to be one of those. Look at what he says. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what, underline it, circle it, put it in your devotions, meditate on it. Uh, I was thinking of the other day, you know, like uh, talking with certain brothers in the church, how you put your sermon together, how you do this, how do you outline this, how do you sketch this out, can you show me how to do? Okay, one thing I do now more than anything, I tell you the truth, that's been tremendously helpful is I just look at the text, to borrow a phrase from John Piper. I just look at the passage. Just look at it. Just meditate on it. Just think it every which way, the up and down and inside out, from this side and that side and this side. It's like, it's just, I just literally exhaust my thinking patterns on this passage. I think of every which way this passage is going to inform something. Or, or, you know, I just think up and down and inside and out and everything else. And I tell you what, that has proven to me to be more valuable than looking for 10 hours at commentaries. Now, careful. Don't do this unless you spent as much time as I have in commentaries. <laughs> okay, you got to earn it, baby. <laughs> unless you've read as many footnotes as I've read in technical commentaries, thousands of hours of reading this stuff, okay? I'm not saying, don't start there, but I'm saying you still got to do the commentary part, okay? I was uh, talking with a pastor in Mexico when we were down there, Pastor uh, Hector, Hector Bustamantes, and he was asking me my process of preaching and preparing and sermon prep and all of that. And he started going down the line of commentaries. And I just told him, I go, yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't read every single footnote on every single commentary every single time anymore, lest I die. And I mean that. Uh, because, uh, and, and I told him, I don't have to anymore. There was a time where I felt like I needed, and he, and he said, and he said, you know, I, he's like, I, I, I'm still there. I, I still need that. It's like I, I stack them. I read every single one, every single footnote, every single thing. I say, I know, I know. I, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. On some passage, I said, but, you know, you'll get there. You know, just you know, do this for 10 more years, and you'll probably be where I'm at. You know, you just kind of get comfortable. You get comfortable with just knowing the text, knowing where Paul's, you know. Like, I knew this whole thing about God's gospel. I knew, you know, I knew the passages where he talks about. So I knew there's a theology there. Just like there's a theology of glory. I know in Paul, there's a whole theology of glory. It's just waiting for me to go and discover it. I don't need the you know, commentaries to tell me that every time. But speaking of that, that's the second point here. Not, not just called uh, by, okay, those who gain the glory will be called by God and called by the gospel and called for glory. Called for glory. What glory? Now we've got to define when the text says that we are called to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, is what glory? Because don't you see, this word doxa, glory, can have different meanings depending on the context. It can speak of Jesus' deity, that glory. And question for you, will you gain the deity glory of Christ? 
Absolutely not. (laughs) Will you gain his ontological glory? Never. We don't share in that glory. Sometimes the passages uh, that use this word glory speak of his fame, his honor, that glory. Like Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, when they ascribe all glory to the Lamb. They're saying all renown, laud Him, worship Him, praise Him, glorify, that kind of glory. And it also speaks of glory is literally referred to as a realm, a sphere, a state. And I think it probably means something like that. That the glory to which we will gain is that heavenly condition, that heavenly state, that heavenly beauty, that heavenly shore, brothers and sisters, right? Gain the glory, saying, man, you're going to make it to the promised land. You're going to make it to the realm of glory. That's your destiny. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us a little bit about this. One commentator, Jeffrey Wyma, suggests that the glory that is being referred to here is speaking about the heavenly radiance, the beauty, the majesty, the effulgence that illuminates everything else. That sort of glory that you might be thinking about even in your mind, uh, 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 visibly in your mind, uh, shining, glowing, uh, emanating, light going out. That's true, and that will be the glory. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8, we are told that we will have incomparable glory. Ready? Let me give you three texts that speak to the fact that this glory is a glory that will be revealed through glorification, and it is that glory that will be of the same nature as Christ has in His own glorified body, and it will be a glory that will never, ever end. For example, Romans eight seventeen, If children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. You see that? For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. So there, it's like glory is something that will be communicated to us. You see? What about in us? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the, watch this now. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Woo! That text is mighty, beloved, because what Paul is saying there is the same power, the same power that Jesus has to end the world, to peel back the skies, to melt the universe. That power is what will emanate us in the age to come. It is that same omnipotent power of the eschaton that Christ has at his disposal is the same power that he will glorify your body 
no longer rotting in the grave. Boom! Newness of life. Can you... Is that a word that I just uttered? Can you see it? I mean... 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. It'd be enough if God let us have this for a moment. That would be enough. But it's that He's going to give us that and He's going to give it to us for all eternity. That's too much to bear. 2 Timothy 2.10 For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I've got one more point. How long I've been going? This, you, can you tell me? Oh, pff, babies. Don't cry yet. We've got one more point, and it's absolutely indispensable to everything that we're talking about. What's my question? What's my question for today? How do you know someone's going to gain the glory? And so far, we talked about the sovereignty of God. God chose you. That's how you know. Secondly, we talked about the means, one of the means that God called you by the gospel, right? Last of all, I want to couch it in this way, and I want you to very much tune in, because this is the worldview our church desperately needs. Verse uh, 15. So then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Okay. We're not going to hear word of mouth from Paul. Are we? No. That's not us. We're not in that generation. We're not going to hear it out of the mouth of Paul himself. Furthermore, when he says, whether by letter from us, What we have now is the letters that were preserved for us in a book. We have the letters of the Apostle Paul, at least those that are inspired, because Corinthians talks about correspondence letters that we no longer have. But the ones that we have are the ones that matter in, in the end because those are the ones that are inspired of God. And so what Paul is talking about here, we could boil it, if we kind of distill it all down, what we're talking about here is that the person who will gain the glory is the person who will be taught by God in the church. That's what's important. You know, I did a study on this a long time ago. The Apostle Paul doesn't know anything about rogue Christianity. Do you know that? Nothing. I, re- I meet rogue Christians all the time. It's like, they're drawn to me or something. They come to me, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely. Where do you go to church? Nowhere. I don't need church. I just kind of do my own thing. What? Well, who's your pastor? Well, I don't really have a pastor. I just, you know, I, I don't have time working and, you know, things like that. What? So wait a minute, you're a Christian, but you don't go to church? I'm saying, you know, I'm a mechanic, but I don't go to a garage. I'm a cook, but I don't go in a chef. Uh, I don't go in a kitchen. What's wrong with you? You can't. 
This is, the Apostle Paul, he did not understand this concept of rogue Christianity. I just got an article where it talked about digital church. It's like a revamping now of what's going on, especially with VR and virtual reality and what's going on. You know, this is catching on big time right now in the world. People are, what they're saying is, don't go to church. I mean, what, what do you get at church? Problems, personality conflicts. You got people rubbing you the wrong way. People asking you for money. You know, you're uncomfortable. Chairs aren't comfortable. You know, music's not great. You know, all this stuff, right? Just slap on a pair of VR goggles, man. And you can watch any preacher you want and just go to church like that. And that's catching on. So now they're building communities where they're all gathering on these virtual goggles. And that's church. I tell you what. Tell you what. Paul knew nothing of the sort. The Apostle Paul was, above everything else, a churchman. He was a churchman. And I've beat that to death here, but that's what's important. So let me make two closing comments on this. Number one, those that are taught by God in the church trust the revelation of God. They trust the revelation of God. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because this is something that the Apostle has already talked about explicitly and it is the hallmark of this church. In other words, it is, very, it is central to why this church is so commendable. You know this passage. We, we preached on it extensively, but look how long the verse is. It's worth reading here. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. He says, For this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which, watch this now, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. That's, that's heaven or hell right there. That's eternity in the balance right there. People will not receive the word for what it really is. Is it the word of God? Well, these Thessalonians said, it is, for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. Number one, those who are taught of God trust the revelation of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, we do not cast doubt on the Word of God. We do not question the Word of God. We do not undermine the Word of God. We do not profane the Word of God. We don't do that to the... We don't peddle the Word of God. We treat the Word of God for what it is. God's Word. Which brings me to this point. Because my point is this. Those who are going to gain the glory will be taught by God in the church. In the church means like what Calvin was famous for saying. God is not your father if the church is not your mother. In other words, it does no good to say that you're a Christian if you don't go to a Christian church. What does that mean? Well, by going to church, I become a Christian? No, of course not. Of course not. But it does mean that one of the byproducts of true salvation, authentic regeneration, is that when you are born again, your God-given impulse by virtue of a new spiritual sense that has been imparted to you by the Spirit of God projects you, propels you to go to church. Propels you 
to look forward to the assembly. And so what I'm saying is this, brothers and sisters, let me bring it all the way to the place where I wanted to bring it to today, and that's this, that the preaching ministry of the Word of God in the church of God, of course, it is the means of God to save His people, to, to, to sanctify His people, to nurture and to cultivate the faith of His people. But, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. When the Word of God is being preached, it is an event. It is a monumental task. Even if I or whoever is up here falls dreadfully short of that task, this is not ordinary conversation. That's why preaching is not a back and forth like the emergent church try to do. Isn't isn't that just a tactic of the devil? They try to take away the word preaching from the Bible. Take the word preaching out of the Bible. Because we don't want the word to be preached Because then what happens when you just preach, preach the Word of God? What's going on there? You are declaring. You are following the logical flow of thought. You are in the mind of Christ in Scripture. You are distilling for the people the logical sequence, the exegetical flow of the text, which is the mind of God coming to us. Therefore, we have to at all costs protect the expository ministry of the Word of God in the church, we never, you know, not going to happen. Well, by God's grace, not going to happen here, man. Not going to happen here. We're always going to preach. You come back, by God's grace, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, hopefully someone in this church can be like, chapter 1, verse 22. So everybody turn there with you in your Bibles. And it hopefully will never be this thing where this wooden object is gone not even a music stand, and some guy up here with like a talk show host card or something. Hey, guys, got some great things to talk to you guys. Something wrong there because it's hard work. It's not easy. It should be easy. You guys, I sit back there at times before I come up here and preach. People ask you, you still get nervous? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes it's worse than other Sometimes it's like I'm real nervous because it's like, man, whew, do I got it. MacArthur says, young pastors, you're studying, get ready to preach this When are you done? Don't get out of that chair until you're done, until you know you got it. Right? Shot like we talked about in Sunday school. Last point. And I can go forever on that. Why, why do I mention the nature of preaching, by the way, brothers and sisters? Is Because I think evangelically we are kind of we're always in a danger with the nature of preaching and, and what it is, okay? Even expository preaching, have you heard this new one, right? Where expository preaching is not about going through the text, talking about verbs and nouns, and that's not grammar and all of that. Some people say, well, as long as you identify what the point of the passage is and then just preach on that point, it's still not, it's still not, uh, what the reformers called expositio continuum. It is not a verse-by-verse exposition, line upon line, thought for thought, phrase by phrase, and how they connect with each other. It's not syntactical preaching. That's the problem with it. I think I just created a new word. Syntactical preaching. Write it down, uh, Lyndall. Let me forget it. (laughs) Yeah, try growing your church through syntactical preaching. But it is what Paul gives us. I mean, think about this. Think about this passage that we're on today. The world is 
decaying. Antichrist is coming. Apostasy is coming. Delusion is coming. But, if you don't pay attention to that conjunction, but, you miss the whole point of the message. Right? You miss the drama of what Paul is saying there. So, syntactical preaching is absolutely necessary. But last of all, brothers and sisters, somebody who will gain the glory and taught by God in the church, number, number, the, the, the sub-point is this, not only will you trust the revelation of God, brothers and sisters, but you will treasure the revelation of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Um, as you're turning there, let me tell you where I got why I got to the place where I got here in talking about treasuring the Word of God. In the context of Thessalonians that we've been looking at, do you remember what made it or what, 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 what was the breaking point for those that perish? They did not love the truth. Not enough to know it. Not enough to know it. It's not enough to sit in the pew and just hear it intellectually even being able to articulate it. You know how many false converts in churches across Reformed churches, you know how many false converts across Reformed churches can get up and articulate perfect theology? But they have no spiritual life. I mean, testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony where that is true. That is true. Psalm 119 reminds us that Scripture is a love affair for the believer. We should be lost in a love affair relationship with the Word of God. We should be in rapture with the truth. We should be enchanted with its wisdom. We should be lost in her beauty. We should be intoxicated with its endless supply of mystery and light and illumination. That's how we should relate to the Word of God. This aspect is so absolutely important because it gets down to the fact of whether or not we love Scripture. We love... Isn't it amazing? If we don't love Scripture, that's a real litmus test as to whether or not we love God. That's, that's where it goes. And Psalm 119 is where this love affair burns the brightest. It's all about the Word. This is a Torah psalm. It's a psalm about the Word and the believer's love for the Word. Look at verse 97. My wife memorized this entire psalm. Uh, she's probably, I hope nobody challenges me today to be able to recite it. <laughs> but I've heard her just go verse after verse, stanza after stanza after stanza. I can't even believe it. I don't know two people that have memorized Psalm 119. Anyway, but... Um, Psalm 119, verse 97 to 104. Listen to what it says. Oh, how I love your law. That's a point of self-examination. Do we love God's law? Which, taken generally, and just the principle here is the law referring to the word. Don't limit it to the Ten Commandments. Okay, He's saying the sum of it, it even says in Psalm 19, the sum of your word is true. Do we, can we say, we love your law? It is my meditation all the day. You're working on stuff. You're driving, you're thinking about that verse. 
you're at work, you're thinking about, you're making little notes. Yeah, I got to look into that because what did that mean? And what does Paul mean when he says this? Because I don't got this. What does Jesus mean when he says this is difficult? You're, it is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. In other words, it's like Paul says, it's my gospel, my word. This is my faith. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Apparently, what David is saying is, you could be a teacher of the law and not meditate on the law. Meditation means you perseverate on it. You chew on it. It's kind of like language of chewing the cud, right? You swallow it, you spit it back up, chew it, swallow it, spit. and that's all you're doing all day long to the Word of God. You're just chewing, 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 chewing. I have a great advantage over all of you, of course, because as a pastor, that's my job. My job is to chew on the Word of God all the time. And the tyranny of Sunday assures that I better be chewing on it because <laughs> the sermon is coming, right? Preaching, you got to preach, <laughs> so you better be ready. And so I warn you non-pastors in here, don't be deceived by your non-clergy life, thinking that you are exempt. This is about your soul, not about your calling, about your soul. Do you meditate on his testimonies? Are they yours? I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. The law of God is for obedience. It's for doing, not just hearing. Right, James? Don't say, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do. Don't say that you love me and you do not obey my commandments, Jesus said. I have restrained my feet from, evil, from the evil way that I may keep your word. The reason I don't go headlong into sin is because I want to go headlong into Scripture. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste. You cannot fake that. You cannot fake that. You can tell people you like the Bible. You can tell people, it's an amazing book. I've had atheists to tell me, like, it's, yeah, it's remarkable. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing how many genealogies and how they keep records. Fascinating. Fascinating how the Bible has all this information. Yeah, but is that information sweet to you? Do you savor it like the honeycomb? Is it like honey to your mouth? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I forgot that was the next line. <laughs> Is it sweeter than honey to my mouth? Your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, no seeker sensitivism here, beloved. You love God this way. You love His Word this way. You treasure Scripture this way. You delight in Scripture. You, it's sweet to you. You know what kind of religion comes out of that? What kind of faith? What kind of Christianity comes out of that? It's not a seeker-sensitive type, wishy-washy, evangelifish Christianity. It's backbone 
Christianity. It's iron in the bones of your soul. Christianity. Strength. Fortitude. Dogma. Staunch devotion to the Word of God. Unabashed. Unashamed. Let the chips fall where they may. I love His Word. Therefore, I hate X, Y, and Z. I hate every false way. Isn't that just tremendous? Brothers and sisters, I bear witness to the power of Scripture in your lives. I can testify. Maybe you don't, but maybe because, you know, I have a different perspective. I see you from a different angle. I meet you, and then years later, I get to see the progression of your faith. I get to see your progress. I can tell you, you're growing. This conversation was not possible many years ago. You didn't know what redemptive historical hermeneutics were. You didn't care about hermeneutics at all. You didn't know what this doctrine was, doctrine was what this idea was. You weren't learned in this theology. And you're growing. You're actually growing. It's your, 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 your ability to, to, to grasp Theological truth has grown. And so when it says you gain understanding, I see it in myself and I see it in you. And that should be a point of encouragement. And so I tell us, brothers and sisters, strengthen the things that are strong. Keep going in, 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 in what you know is true. Persevere to the end because those who endure to the end will be saved. This is how you endure to the end. This is how you gain the glory. This is why church, I got to be honest with you, low attendance today in church, in my estimation. And it always bothers me. It bothers me because I think, where is everyone? I know that's, I know that's, you know, this is me just confessing to you. You know, your family, right? And it just bothers me. Where are they? They should be here. Man, what I'm going to talk about today, this is life-changing. Why? Because of the way I'm saying it? No, because it's true. It's life-changing. And I know we got legitimate reasons, but you know, I'm always watching, so it better be legitimate. <laughs> I don't think Lynn and I would be good pastors if we didn't care about that. But we care about that. You're missing for a couple weeks? Mm, what's going on? Missing for three weeks, boom, where are you at? Missing for four weeks, there's a problem. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but we pray that this will be because it flows from your heart to want to be in the Word. It flows from your own heart. It's not just it's this duty-bound religion. It's that I love your law, oh God. I want to be under your Word today. I recognize the powerful means of grace that it is. I hate every false way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for these precious people. I am so privileged. I am so utterly grateful that I have a ministry where I can preach your word. I'm so utterly grateful to Heritage Grace, Lord. It is difficult to express my gratitude and my, my amazement, frankly. Every week I pinch myself. Every Sunday I scratch my head wondering how people would want to come and hear me preach. 
But of course, Lord, your word teaches us that, well, it's because it's not about you. It's about the word of God. And Lord, I pray that you protect every one of us from the preacher down to the last member. That you would guard our hearts and our minds from straying from that commitment to your word, from loving your word. And that every member in our church, that we wouldn't rest, even as a membership, we wouldn't rest until we are able to communicate to one another, to teach one another, instruct one another from your word. And that this worship of your, uh, of the, the worship that comes from knowing your word and knowing you better, that that would just become infectious, that that would just become, that would spill over into every pew. And we won't rest until we see that. So that, as Paul says, that we would with one voice magnify our God. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, Lord.